You're listening to Pathfinders Pod, conversations with entrepreneurs in response to the current COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Tessa, and today we're diving straight into Global Entrepreneur Week. Since Monday, we've been joined by thousands of change agents and thought leaders from all around the world, debating and workshopping what the future will look like and needs to look like post-COVID. For this week's episode, we're tuning into one of those sessions, specifically looking at the education system and how we need to be more radical. The conversation is hosted by facilitator and coach Tebeka Pozla and features two incredibly progressive thinkers. The first, Pascal Fanet, who is the co-founder at Be Radical and Singularity University's Chair for Entrepreneurship and Open Innovation. And the second, Fred Swanica, who is a serial entrepreneur and leadership development expert and the co-founder and trustee of African Leadership Group. As the topic for today is really about being radical, being innovative, because we would all like to know how do we bring in radical ideas, radical leadership, radical creativity or co-creation? Within your fields of expertise, how do you bring what radical means in your space, in your industry? How do we do that? So the way I look at this, and I'm coming from a, an entrepreneurial as well as technology background, and a lot of the work I've been doing over the last 15 years or so has been at the like kind of this intersection of like trying to understand what the future could look like and then supporting, as I mentioned, helping others to see that as well. And I think the, the radical part for me comes out of two pieces. And one actually ties very strongly into what Fred said earlier. So first one is, particularly as a futurist, there's an interesting and important acknowledgement of the fact that despite the fact that people can say like, you know, like let's predict, try to predict the future, um, mm -hmm. Let's create these scenarios and models and, you know, use frameworks, etc. The most important thing about the future, which I understood, hopefully understood relatively early, is that the future is unwritten. Like there is actually nothing set in stone about the future and thus it is on us to create the future. And for me, the, the question then becomes, if that is, if you hold that true as a belief, then the question becomes, do you want to be a passive player and being basically tossed around by the, the forces they are? Or do you choose to take an active stance and create the future you want to see in the world? And I do believe like particularly, you know, like living in the United States right now is an interesting moment in time, an infliction point in time where I think millions of people are standing up to say, I, we want to create that future, a future we want to see. So I think that's the first thing which I believe is important to understand. And the second one is, if you have the abilities, you're giving, given some powers. And I want to acknowledge mm -hmm. the fact that there clearly is people who don't have those abilities and or the powers. Mm -hmm. I think it's an imperative on us to stand up and create and tackle the world's biggest problems and create, I call this build what matters. Mm -hmm. Like going out there and creating the change you want to see in the world then everything becomes radical because you have to do it, right? It's this like inner drive which you have to, to express. So the imperative on us as, as humans, given the gift of some form of whatever it is, privilege, resources, you know, whatever it is, 
to step forth and create the change we want to see in the world. And I guess it's that whole thing of being an, an enabler. So it's not that the other person who doesn't have, right, the access to, because um, forget knowledge, we need to go take a step a little back as people need access so that they have the knowledge. Otherwise, if you don't, then you don't even have the knowledge. Uh, anyway, I'll take that over to Fred. Uh, what are you saying there in Kenya? Um, so, you know, you asked what does radical mean to, to, to me? So I'm in an industry that's about a thousand years old, which is higher education. Uh, the first, you know, university that's you know, recognized uh, as, as the first university in the world was, you know, uh, University of Fez in Morocco. And that I think was started in the year 900 or something. And then you had, you know, University of Bologna in Italy. And then you have Oxford started, you know, about a thousand years ago. So. It's, a, it's an industry that prizes tradition and you know, they, it really, really is not open to a lot of change. So we set out to reimagine higher education. And to me, being radical means challenging conventional norms, being bold. It means thinking not just about best practice, but really new practice. Because I think very often we try and say, oh, let's bring best practice. And, and in, in, in the context that we're in Africa, you know, we, we have many, many constraints. So as we thought about building a new form of higher education, these are the constraints. You know, traditional universities have taken, a, you know, the best universities in the world have been built over hundreds of years. We didn't have hundreds of years when we set this goal. We had about 6,000 days. We didn't have much time. We, didn't, we had to do this very quickly. The second thing is traditional universities have lots of professors, with PhDs. In Africa, we don't have professors with PhDs. And, uh, you know, traditionally, it's, it's cost billions of dollars to build universities. In Africa, we don't have billions of dollars. We have millions of, of young people with very few slots. So we had to reimagine everything. So where we came up, one of the things I really believe is that constraints drives innovation. So because we had so many constraints, we, we had to start over. We couldn't just borrow the traditional model. We had to reimagine everything. And so what we ended up with is a university where the learning is not driven by a scarce resource of professors, but is driven by an abundant resource, which is students. And they teach themselves, they teach each other through peer learning, they leverage technology from around the world, and we are seeing outcomes where we're producing talent that is able to comp compete with graduates from Stanford and Harvard and Yale in this model. We, we decided that we're gonna assess them in projects, not grades. One of the things we decided to move away from, you know, traditional universities give you an academic, many of academic majors, and uh, they say, pick from this menu. But very often that menu, you know, Bachelor of Arts in History, Bachelor of Science in Chemistry was created 50 years ago. And most people entered careers that have nothing to do with what they studied in college. The world is changing so fast that you need to become, a, you know, to reimagine yourself. So we said, we're not going to give our students many of academic disciplines. We'll rather give them a menu of the grand challenges facing Africa, healthcare, climate, governance, et cetera. And we say, don't choose a major, choose a mission. And, become a problem solver. And that really is the end goal because even as the world changes when artificial intelligence, et cetera, makes your job irrelevant. If you're a problem solver and you've learned how to learn, you can learn new skills and you can continue to solve problems. So these are all the things that we had to do, but it, it, it has often meant being willing to be misunderstood and being called crazy. And, and many people who are in the, uh, you know, in the more status quo will obviously uh, try to, 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 to bring it down. And so it requires having that conviction 
to, to say that, you know, we're going to continue doing what we're going to do because we believe it, is, it has a, it has a, a real um, noble purpose to, to be achieved. Wow, that's, that is radical. <laughs> that is radical to look at a system that we so used to and say, but this doesn't work for us. And what actually works is what needs to work and think what they call outside the box. In the midst of all this, mm. we have brought cost down to zero. It doesn't cost anyone anything to go to our university. So we have been able to reimagine even the way we pay for education. If people are able to access our universities with zero upfront, and rather they pay a subscription fee after they get a job to become a lifelong learner. And so that allows us to, to, to fund this university system. And so we've made it completely accessible. But it required, again, moving away from convention and, and be really, really being willing to be misunderstood. Wow, that's amazing. It looks like Pascal wants to say something. Um... I can only uh, plus one and applaud Fred for what he's doing. Um, you know, coming from a slightly different angle, but also looking mm. at the education space, we've been thinking about education a lot. And I think, uh, you know, one thing Fred uh, mentioned, which really resonates with me, and I think it's important for us to understand is that most of us are operating in a scarcity mindset. So we're looking at the constraints mm. in the system, and then we design around those constraints. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that when you do exactly what Fred did, which is essentially you're going back to first principles, you say, forget the, the norms, the existing models, but go back to the first principles, the physics way of looking at it. And this is like, what do we actually want to achieve? And what do we know to be true? So in the learning space, for example, we know to be true that, you know, knowledge needs to be disseminated, but who says that only a professor can disseminate knowledge? The moment you get into first principles, you can flip it. And then you can ask yourself exactly, what is it the abundance we're having or can create? And how do we build out of that? I think it really resonated so strongly with me because we're applying the same like basic principle to all the constraints-based thinking we're seeing in the world. So my invitation is always, it is very easy to look at the world as a world of scarcity. And quite frankly, I, th there's, a, there's a piece in this, which is the neuroscience of us as human beings, which is the amygdala, the oldest part of your brain, which is the fight or flight part of your brain, the part which sees the, the saber-toothed tiger and wants to run away because you're going to die. That part is dominated by the scarcity mindset. It's dominated by the question, what do I find to eat in the savannah tomorrow, right, so that I survive as a species? But we are not, in many cases, we are not living in this world anymore. If you think about education, for me, I'm on the digital advisory board of Pearson, which is the world's largest uh, education group. And, you know, like they've got their own issues by large, no question. But the fascinating question we have with Pearson is when you sit in the board meetings and we talk about who is our main competitor, the main competitor to Pearson today is not another company. The main competitor is YouTube because everything is abundant and free and available at least, and this goes to your point, uh, Tobika, if you have the access, right? So of course, then you, need, like, then you get into the conversation about giving people access to the internet and having them have enough bandwidth and the compute power, et cetera. But it flips the model. The moment you understand that, it flips the model. So I can only underline what Fred does and like, his work is phenomenal and like truly, groundbreaking in, in the way of thinking about flipping the scarcity model to, to a radically abundant model.
And I think Pascal, you, you obviously Singularity University is, is a great model of that as well. And I mean, what you what you guys are doing there, which is uh, thinking about how do you leverage exponential technology to create some of that abundance? You know, because if you think about something like education, we lived in a world where information was scarce. So you had to go to the university to get it from the head of the professor. <laughs> yes. But today, thanks to Google, a child in a rural area in Africa has access to more information on their mobile phone than someone who was doing a PhD at Oxford 30 years ago. And so information is ubiquitous, it's abundant, it's everywhere. And so that means you can really choose the responsibility for learning from that. You know, now the, 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 that child can access more information than is in the head of the professor. That's right. And so, and so suddenly now you have this abundant mindset, abundance and technology has been a game changer for that. I think we can do this in healthcare, we can do this in so many other fields. If we just break those, um, you know, think in terms of what is the abundant resource and build around that, not around the scarce resource. So what's amazing of what you, both of you, Pascal and Fred have just shared is obviously in the current situation, right? Of COVID and education. So COVID has made us re-look at how education is being delivered. I do think there's a place for um, online learning alone, you know, research shows doesn't, is not as effective as blended learning, right? We need, best learning is social. People learn from each other. They learn by, you know, doing, pro, you know, and, 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 and working projects together, et cetera. So the, the ultimate uh, model, I believe, is where you are leveraging technology to do just the content, but you're still bringing people together to learn from each other and from some mentors, et cetera. And that's really uh, what we're trying to do. It speaks to a very important thing that I, that I believe, you know, university, unfortunately, will continue to be a market. What they do is they give you access to a social class. And so when you buy that Princeton degree and you go and spend four years there, you are essentially spending four years in a country club with the most wealthy, connected people in society and you're buying social capital, which can then throughout your life. So, you know, research shows that 80% of jobs are filled by word of mouth and 75% of jobs are never been advertised. So you need to be connected to people and, you know, whether it's the same thing for raising venture capital, for getting mentorship, etc. So what people get, what people will continue to pay for, those universities that have that brand, that have that social class will, are not going to be disrupted. They will can do things the same way and people will continue paying $300,000 to go there because they're buying access to that social now that's not, that's, that needs to be disrupted. So one of the ways we are disrupting that is we have created um, a private community called The Room, where we are getting disadvantaged you know, children from across Africa, people who would never afford to go to Princeton. And we are bringing into that community, you know, experts from around the world and, 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 and we're bringing the world's best talent into that community to mentor this next generation of, of leaders. And so then you're getting access to alumni, not just from Princeton, but from Harvard and MIT and Yale and McKinsey and Bain, and bring them all together and connect them to the next generation of Africans. And they don't have to pay $300,000 to go there. They only pay $50. And that, these are the kinds of disruptions that we have to, to, to think about. If I can Thank just you. like point out, Fred, uh, you are doing again what you just talked about, which is you took something which is scarce by definition, which is the like the country club, right? Like the, the membership. And you just like by blowing it up and asking what is the first principle about this? Again, like what's the first principle? The first principle is connecting people. 
And then asking yourself, okay, how can I do this differently? And I love the, like, and, and abundantly. And absolutely, I love this. And I, for everyone who's like listening to this, I think that's exactly what we need to do with everything we look at. Like, look at the, the, the scarcity challenge you have. Go to the first principle. Say, what is it you're actually trying to solve for? And then ask yourself, what is a fundamentally different way to solve this in an abundant way? I love this. It's absolutely phenomenal. Unfortunately, we had to stop it there. This conversation went on for another 45 minutes and you bet it got more radical as it went on. We'll be doing our best to share as much from Global Entrepreneur Week with you as possible. So watch out for this in the coming weeks. And just a really quick apology for Fred's audio at different points throughout. We're offering the transcript of this podcast to anyone who'd like it. So just email us at hello at leagueofentrepreneurs.com if that is you. Thank you for joining us for another week on Pathfinders Pod. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other.